بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Welcome back to our MISC Women class, Women on the Straight Path. I'm Um Abdullah. Ahnan wa sahnan. Thank you for joining us again today. Inshallah, we are going to start with a new direction. We finished our study of the ancient women who are mentioned in the Quran. And inshallah, we're planning on having a couple of lessons, inshallah, on the women in the Quran in the prophetic era. Uh, specifically regarding the women upon whom the Quran was revealed or about whom the Quran was revealed. And inshallah, these are very uh, revealing stories in the sense that they show us really how women at the time understood themselves with regards to the Quranic paradigm and the Quranic worldview and what it meant for them to be Muslim. So inshallah the, the goal is to try and connect to that outlook, to connect to that way of understanding and that way of being with regards to the Quran and to our deen in general, inshallah. And I think there's a lot of value in studying these particular circumstances of how the Quran was revealed with regards to particular situations that women found themselves in in the time of the Prophet Today, inshallah, we're going to look at four of these. One of them you may know, and three you probably wouldn't have heard of. But what's, as I said, is really significant is the profound impact that these circumstances and events had, not just on the women themselves and in terms of their faith, but particularly on the establishment of their rights. And today we'll look at that with regards to freedom of religion marriage and inheritance laws and interestingly enough these are the areas particularly marriage and inheritance that are now the most contested uh, by people who want to critique Islam and critique the rights of women in Islam because it's these areas that are focused on as somehow that within these uh, laws, these sets of laws and the rights that were established within them, that somehow Islam is oppressive and patriarchal uh, and that it does an injustice to women. But inshallah, I think we'll see um, how these laws were established to actually validate and not just validate, but establish and set in stone forever and universally that these are the rights for women because they're women and that these are the most appropriate ways to understand and to enact justice when it comes to women uh, in a Muslim society. So it's really quite interesting and we'll see how these laws were established because of the strength of the faith that these women had in Allah, knowing that justice would be granted to them and how it placed women at the forefront of financial independence, protection from abuse, and freedom to seek her rights. And also it's not really required to say this because we don't need to compare Islam to any other system in order to know its truth and validity and it, 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 that it is the haq. But 
If we look at the beginning of feminism in Britain in the 1860s and we look at how it was in these areas, particularly of marriage and inheritance, where we look at the status of women in that and we see how backwards oppressed and nullified that women's rights were, um, then we can see and gauge just how illuminated and universal and advanced the rights of women in Islam were, how they were established and how they are and how they always will be, inshallah. So we'll start with our intentions for learning and teaching from the great Imam Haddad. Allah be pleased with him. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Nawaitu ta'alum wa ta'alim wa tadakkura wa tadkir wa nafa'a wa intifa' wa al-ifadata wa al-istifada wa al-hatha ala tamassuki bi kitabillahi wa sunnati rasulihi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa dua ila al-huda wa dalalata ala al-khair ibtiga'a wajihillahi wa marudatihi wa kurbihi wa thawabihi subhanahu wa ta'ala in the name of Allah, most gracious, most merciful, I intend to learn and teach to remember and remind, to benefit myself and to benefit others, to derive usefulness and extend it to others, to encourage adherence to the Book of Allah and the Sunnah of His Messenger وسلم, to call to guidance and direct towards good, seeking thereby the countenance, pleasure, proximity and reward of Allah, the absolutely transcendent and most exalted. Amen. So we've mentioned a little bit about why it's important that we study about the women upon whom or about whom the Quran was revealed. And if we try to imagine ourselves at the time, then we can see how it is that the Quran was revealed in real time. Now, the one thing that we do have in common with the women in the era of the Prophet والسلام, so the Sahabiyat, the female companions, is that all the stories that we've studied so far and that they also heard uh, with the revelation of the Quran are stories that for them were also ancient and in the past. So for us, even more so in the past, but that is something about the stories of the women in the Quran that we do share with them, the fact that it's ancient for all of us, except for them perhaps the story of Sayyidah Maryam, uh, that was a bit closer to their time because that would have been about six or seven hundred years prior to that. But if we think about how far now we are from the prophetic era, that's now 1400 years, which is even double what their distance was between them and uh, Sayyidina Isa, Jesus Islam, and his mother Sayyidina Maryam. So there's quite a lot of time that has elapsed, but nonetheless, the stories of the ancient times were ancient uh, for them just as they are for us. But what we can do, inshallah, to try and put ourselves in the right frame of mind and to try and develop for ourselves the correct Quranic perspective and worldview is to think how would it have been if we were there when the Quran was revealed. So if we imagine that it took 13 years for the Prophet ﷺ to establish faith and for people to really understand what Islam was and to turn away from their polytheism, their worshipping of false idols and false gods and to turn 
to the Quran, then we can also see how it was the basis that they had, the basis that when they did go to him and seek their rights for the certain issues that they were facing, this happened in Medina. So this happened after the Hijra, after the migration, and after faith had already been well and truly established. And that particular worldview that those women had or view of the Quran uh, based on that strength of their faith is really the worldview that we need to strive ourselves to develop and cultivate and to be bonded to because the Quranic reality as it was lived then is also the Quranic reality that we have now it's just that we're not connected to it so whilst they of course had the blessing of being in the real madrasa and nabawiya the real prophetic school that prophetic school has never stopped it's just that it has also gone through the passing of time and so they were the faith community that lived the quran and experienced it in real time but the real time of the quran is never ending because it's always relevant it's always universal it's always applicable and it's always living and so we are the faith community now uh, that needs to bond to it the way that that original faith community bonded to it at the beginning so inshallah these stories will really help us formulate and mold and direct our orientation or what's called tawajjuh so the way that we orientate ourselves to Allah through the Quran and they show how people responded to the divine call and the divine address and just imagine that you had a problem or an issue or question and you turn to the Quran and you know that you, the answer to that issue will be in the Quran and that's the mindset that we need to establish for ourselves in order to re-establish our true faith, our true orientation and our siddiq, our truthfulness and our ikhlas, our sincerity as Muslims. Inshallah. The first of our four women that we're going to look at today is, this is the one you may have heard of. Her name is Khawla bint Thalaba. And she was a very well-known Sahabiya at the time and she had a particular about four verses actually revealed about the situation that she was facing so Hola bin Thalaba was the wife of Aus ibn al-Samit who was the brother of Ubaidah bin Samit and they were of the 12 of the original group who made the pledge um, the Pledge of Allegiance to the Prophet at the second Pledge of Aqaba. So it was after that when he knew that he had the commitment and the protection of the tribes of Medina that the order for him, the divine order for him to migrate was issued and he went there into their protection. So uh, Hola's husband and her brother and the people of Medina, they are very much the original Ansar, those the helpers of Medina, those to whom the people, the Muslims of Mecca, migrated to. So very, very core people here. Okay. So the story goes that uh, that Ols had become old and was a bit cranky, and one day he came home, and uh, Hola was there. And she was a bit cross about something and she had a bit of a go at him and he got angry with her and he said 
something to her which was a practice of the pre-Islamic, uh, the pre-Islamic days, the days of ignorance. And he said to her, you are to me like the back of my mother, which meant that you are haram for me. And this particular practice was called dihar. And it was a way for a man to separate from his wife and to give up his responsibility towards her and her children. And on top of that, she was not permitted to remarry. So it was kind of like a divorce from his side, but it didn't grant her real release from the marriage to be able to marry again. So it was a very, very cruel and degrading practice that had been part of the practice of the people in the days of ignorance. And he realized that this was perhaps the first time that this vihar had been said in Islam and he in, in the days of Islam and he instantly regretted it and he called her back. And she she knew exactly what he was saying and how degrading it was and so she refused to come back to him and she said I swear by the one in whose hand is my soul that you will not reconcile with me because you said what you said until Allah and his messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam judge between us so she was very feisty and here we have an example of a very pious woman but with a very strong character and she is not about to let anybody walk over her uh, so she went to find the Prophet وسلم, and when she, she got him, she said, O oh, Rasulullah, she said, Aus uh, married me when I was young and desirable, but now that I'm old and my belly has split, meaning that she's had so many pregnancies and births, and he has made me like his mother, which means that he's made this statement that she's haram or impermissible for him, and he's dumped me with no one. And she said, if you find a resolution or an answer, then please revive me or give me hope with it. And so the Prophet, first of all, said that he didn't have anything for her, but he advised her to be patient. And she felt compelled to, to pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for more guidance. And then this particular verse was revealed. And this and the the first four verses of this chapter, chapter number 58. And it says, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, قَدْ سَمِعُ اللَّهُ قَوْلَ الَّتِي تُجَادِلُكَ فِي زَوْجِهَا وَتَشْتَكِي إِلَى اللَّهِ وَاللَّهُ يَسْمَعُ تَهَاوَرُكُمَا إِنَّ اللَّهَ سَمِيعٌ بَصِيرٌ So Allah, certainly Allah heard the speech or the statement of the one who argues with you concerning her husband and directs her complaint to Allah. And Allah hears your conversation. Indeed, Allah is hearing and seeing. So straight away we know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has heard this because he has said that he heard this. And this gave her great hope and gave all the women great hope that nothing is ever left unheard or unknown and that Allah knows everything. And this is the clearest statement which expresses that and confirms that. And then we'll just read the translation of the next verses about this issue. It says, those who pronounce dihar, this particular statement among you, to separate from their wives, they are not their mothers. So their wives are not your mother. You can't say that. It says their mothers are none but those who gave birth to them. And indeed, they are saying an objectionable statement and a falsehood. 
but indeed Allah is pardoning and forgiving. And those who pronounce dihar from their wives and then wish to go back on what they said, then there must be the freeing of a slave before they touch one another. That is what you are admonished thereby and Allah is acquainted with what you do. And he who does not find a slave, then he must fast for two months consecutively before they touch one another. And he who is unable, then he must feed 60 poor persons. That is for you to believe completely in Allah and his messenger and those are the limits set by Allah. And for the disbelievers is a painful punishment. Meaning what? That if somebody takes this lightly and doesn't uh, fulfill this proper expiation of this huge transgression of trying to separate yourself from your wife in such an ignorant way, then don't expect anything other than you're going to suffer for your ignorant choice. And then Sayyidah Aisha recounts this, the story um, in this particular hadith and she said, Blessed is the one whose hearing encompasses all things. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, she said, I heard some of the words of Khawla bin Thalaba, but some of her words were not clear to me. And when she complained to the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam about her husband mm -hmm. and said, O oh, Messenger of Allah, he has consumed my youth and I split my belly for him. But when I got old and could no longer bear children, he declared the har upon me. Oh Allah, I complain to you. And so she continued to complain. This is what Sayyidah Aisha is saying until Jibreel brought down these verses. So her complaint was supported by Allah and it's through this that the unjust custom of the har was banned. So we can see here now that the rights of the woman in marriage are extremely important and are not to be transgressed. So what happened was that the Prophet said to Khawla, go back home and tell your husband to free a slave because this is now what's been commanded in these verses. And she said, oh Allah's messenger, he doesn't have any slave. So he said, then tell him to fast for two consecutive months, which was 60 days of straight fasting. And she said, oh, uh, uh, Rasulullah, he's an old man and he can't fast, like he can't bear that. And then he said, then let him feed 60 poor people with a wasak, which is an amount of dates. And she said, oh, Allah's messenger, he does not have any of that because they were poor. And so the Prophet ﷺ said, and this shows his rahmah, shows his mercy. He said, we'll help him with a basket of dates. And then she said, oh, Allah's messenger, I will help him with another one. And so that's how they got this amount that was required for him to distribute in charity as expiation for his transgression. And the Prophet ﷺ said to her, you have done a good and righteous thing. So go and give away the dates on his behalf. And so she did that. And what this shows us too is how both Khawla and her husband, who was very, very sorry for what he did, how they were so determined to apply and follow the rulings of Islam. So they didn't want to be deficient in anything. And then uh, Ibn Kathir says in his uh, tafsir as well, another story about her some years later. And he narrates that one day uh, Sayyidina Omar, who was the Khalifa at the time, that he saw her on the street and that she had called to him and he uh, welcomed her uh, with nice warm words. She was an old lady by this stage and he stood there listening to her and he stood there for quite a long time. And then 
uh, someone came up to him afterwards and said, so you left your meeting with a man of Quraysh to come and talk to this old woman. And, you know, what, what, what is it? How can she keep you standing here for so long talking? And uh, Omar radiallahu anhu said, woe to you. Do you not know who this is? And the man said, no. And Umar said, this is a woman whose complaint Allah listened to from above the seven heavens. This is Khawla bin Thalaba. By Allah, if she did not leave me until nightfall, I would not tell her to leave until she got what she came for. Unless the time for prayer came, in which case I would pray and then come back to her until she got what she came for. So this also shows the the respect that Sayyidina Omar had for her and for her status and her rank as being the one whom Allah had heard, although Allah hears everything, but then mentioned and solved her problem. So this is a, a really beautiful story which shows us that seeking a woman, sorry, a woman seeking her rights uh, is something that is uh, encouraged and something that uh, should be acted upon and that women should seek to know what is required of them and also um, what is required of those around them to make sure that a proper justice is maintained and acted upon, inshallah. The next one is a Sahabiya called Kubaysha bint Ma'an ibn Asim. So Kubaysha, the daughter of Ma'an, who was the son of Asim. And I'm sure you haven't heard of her. I don't think many people have. And her, uh, the eye that was revealed for her is also very important and about marriage and relates to the Jahili days, the days of ignorance in the pre-Islamic period. So there was a particular practice that the uh, pre-Islamic Arabs had, and that was when, when, when a man passed away and his wife was left. So she was left as a widow. And then what would happen is that the people in the man's family, the men, the male relatives would come and they would throw a cloth over her face. And what this meant was that she was their property and that she was part of the inheritance that the man had left. So instead of her being an independent person and now she's a widow and she has a life of her own, no, she is taken as the property, the inherited property of the, the husband. So it might be that one of his sons or one of his brothers or someone comes and then once his cloth is thrown over her face, then that's the indication that she is the property and that they will dispose of her in whatever way they want. So she wasn't allowed to go back to her own family or perhaps to her children who might have grown up and living in their own houses, nothing like that. She just became an object to be dispensed with. And so if she had the cloth thrown over her face, it meant that she couldn't be married by anyone other than someone in their family or someone uh, of the family's choice and also that they were not obliged to pay her a dowry. And so uh, what they might do is uh, keep her like that and if she was still uh, beautiful and if she was still uh, marriageable and desirable, they might keep her uh, in prison for a while so that perhaps one of the younger brothers of the husband or one of the 
the other young men might sort of come of age and marry her um, or otherwise she would just be uh, taken and married by anyone and um, even if she wasn't beautiful they would still throw the cloth over her and often what they would do in that case then if they no one really wanted to marry her is they would just leave her kind of imprisoned um, and uh, they would just wait until she died and then they would take whatever she had left behind so because they used to give dowries then women would have gold and they would have certain amount of wealth with them that was uh, what they had perhaps they had some animals or things like that so they would just let her die and then take what she had as inheritance from her so again an extremely cruel and harsh and inhumane practice but because of this particular woman Kubeisha then uh, this was the, the, the cause that had this practice outlawed. So she had married a man called Abu Qais, and when he passed away, she was still under the impression that these laws would apply for her, it would apply to her, or she didn't know what would happen because this had been the practice until that time. And so she went to the Prophet because they were all believers, but of course it took quite a long time for a lot of the the, um, ignorant practices to subside and be done away with. And so she went to him and she said, I have not inherited from my husband, nor was I divorced so that I could marry again. So she meant that she was widowed and she didn't get any money from him. Okay, so she missed out there and he hadn't divorced her. So she wasn't free to marry because the only way that a woman could have got out of this practice of having the cloth thrown over her face and everything was if she'd been divorced before the man died and then she would go off. So she said that she she hasn't benefited at all because she's not free to go and marry and uh, she didn't get any inheritance from him so she was going to become the property of a son or somebody else and then you know she spent so many years with this husband who's passed away now and what's in it for her and then this particular the part of this verse was revealed in surah tanisa ya ayyuhalladhina amanu la yahillu lakum an tarithun nisa'a karha so all you who believe it's not permitted for you to inherit to inherit women against their will So this was the verse that outlawed that practice. Um, The verse goes on and it also talks about how you cannot coerce or force women to do anything that they don't want to do with regards to marriage and the giving up of their wealth and their rights. So again, another really important verse that made sure that the freedom of a woman to inherit and her freedom to go on with her life after the death of her husband was established. Uh, This is a really amazing story, this uh, next one of a particular Sahabiya called Um Kulthum bint Okba. And Um Kulthum was the daughter of Okba ibn Abi Mu'id ibn Abi Amr ibn Umayya ibn Abdi Shams. And they were one of the tribes of the Quraysh. They were the um, the Umayyad tribe, the Umawi tribe. Uh, who later on, of course, other members of them set up the Umayyad dynasty, okay, in Damascus. So they became the rulers. 
and uh, so she was from that particular tribe and her mother was Arwa bint Koreis and Um Kulthum was the maternal sister of Sayyidina Uthman ibn Affan, the third Khalifa. So they both had the same mother, but they had different fathers. Uh, so she was of a very, very noble branch of the Quraysh, and she was uh, a noble woman, basically, um, of Mecca. And she accepted Islam quite early, and it said that there was no one, no woman braver than her. And the fact that she was nicknamed Al-Muhajira, Al-Mashia, really testifies to that. It means that she was the walking immigrant. And what happened was she had accepted Islam quite early on. And she had basically been uh, abused by her family for accepting the deen, the faith of Muhammad, And they had imprisoned her in her house and subjected her to a lot of hardship and abuse and trouble uh, because of her religion, because of her choice. And this she'd been subjected to for several years and finally reached a point where she would have to make the decision. Would she continue enduring this hardship from her family so she could stay with her family or would she leave for Medina? And so she decided she couldn't take it anymore and she was going to go to Medina. And so despite the constant surveillance that she had over her, she managed to sneak out one night and she set off towards the mountains on her way to Medina. But she didn't have any provision. She had no water. She had no food. She didn't even know how she was going to get there. Uh, she didn't have any experience or preparation for the desert ahead of her. And we know that there's about 450 kilometers between Mecca and Medina. It's not around the corner. And she just in her absolute faith and tawakkul and trust in Allah that she was going to make her migration. And so she did. She left. And it just so happens that on the way, she came across a Bedouin man who promised her that he would treat her like his sister and he would take her to Medina. SubhanAllah. So she went with him and when she arrived on the outskirts of Medina and she saw this beautiful oasis and she saw the palm trees and, and she saw the whole view and she felt, oh, finally she's here, she can relax now. She's left all this um, terrible situation behind. And she went into the city and she went into see the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam to announce that she had arrived and that she was staying only to discover that her two brothers Walid and Amara knew that she had left Mecca and went on ahead and got there before her and they did that seeking to have her returned to the family so she met them in the presence of the Prophet and the brothers demanded that he return her to them um, under the conditions of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. So there had been a treaty made between the Muslims and the uh, people of Mecca, uh, which is a whole other story, you might be familiar with it, but won't go into it now. And one of the conditions of that treaty was that uh, no prisoners or captives 
would be held that if they caught anyone from either side, they were both obliged under this treaty to return them back to their people. So they said to the Prophet you have to return our sister to us because these are the conditions of the treaty that we're all subject to at the moment. And so she began to plead and she said, Oh Rasulullah, the state of a woman is weak and if you return me, they will torment me because of my deen, because of my faith and I cannot bear it with any patience. And the Prophet ﷺ heard her and the verse was revealed for her and for others like her. And this is in, oh sorry, I didn't put the name of the surah, Al-Mumtahina, uh, it's uh, verse number 10 in Al-Mumtahina. And it says, Ya ayyuhaladina amanu, ida jaakumul mu'minatu muhajiratin famtahinu hunna, Allahu a'lamu bi imanihim. Fa in alimtumu hunna mu'minatin, fala tarjiu hunna ilal kufari, la hunna hillulahum, walahum yohilluna lahun. So, O you who believe, when believing women come to you immigrating, test them. And so we'll mention what that is in a moment. Allah is aware of their faith. And if you find them to be faithful, do not send them back to the unbelievers. They are not lawful for them, nor are they lawful for them. Okay, so the, the women are not lawful now to be married to the polytheistic non-believers. And the polytheistic non-believers are not lawful for the women to marry. So the Prophet ﷺ said to the brothers that this verse now has annulled that part of the treaty regarding women. Okay, so if these women come to him uh, stating their belief, then they cannot be returned back to the polytheists. So that part of the treaty was annulled. And he said, um, this is the, the state for women who've migrated for the sake of their religion, for the sake of Allah, so leave. And he told them to go. Then when it comes to this uh, part about test them, then what that means is that whenever women came uh, claiming to migrate for the sake of Allah, then the Prophet ﷺ would ask them uh, to, to see, is that really what they're migrating for? And so there is some discussion uh, in the tafsir about what that questioning consisted of. So some say the Prophet ﷺ just asked them to say the shahada. Just asked them to say, Ashadu an la ilaha illallah wa ashadu an Muhammad Rasulullah. So there was that. Others said that he would ask them, are you running away from something? Like are you running away from your husband? Or are you running to get some new land? Like maybe they've been told by someone or they've thought for themselves oh, I'll go to Medina and get more land and that will increase our wealth so what he was just checking is that everything was okay with them and that they really knew what they were doing that there wasn't anyone behind them setting them up to do something and that their intentions really were to migrate for the sake of Allah he asked her and she stated anyway um, about her situation and any women who came after that uh, would also be asked the same to make sure that they could also be married, okay? Because if they were running away from a husband, 
then they were already married, so they would need to know that and that they hadn't been divorced so they couldn't marry again. So it wasn't just about them and their own personal circumstances, but what sort of impact that would also have on the community at large. And of course, that's all for the sake of the protection of these women, to make sure that they get exactly what they need, that their circumstances are uh, dealt with in the proper way, and to make sure that there's no injustice happening either behind the scenes or that could happen to them in any other way after that. So this is uh, really for their protection. So Alhamdulillah, Um Kulthum stayed in Medina and she was approached soon after by Zaid ibn Haritha, uh, ibn Sharahil al-Kalbi uh, for marriage. And so she married him. And after a short time, he went to fight at the Battle of Mutta and he was martyred. So then after her uh, waiting period, she was again approached for marriage and she married Azubair ibn al-Awwam, uh, who was very famous Sahabi, one of the ten um, of the Mubashirin al-Jannah, and she gave birth to a daughter called Zainab. However, he was known for harshness of character, and so she asked him to divorce her, and he did. And so not long after that, when she'd finished her waiting period, then she married one of the other great Sahaba, Abdurrahman ibn Auf, and she gave birth to two sons, Ibrahim and Hamid, and then he passed away. And then she married for a fourth time, and she married uh, Amr ibn al-As, another one of the great Sahaba, and after only a month of marriage, she passed away. May Allah be pleased with her. So what this shows us, amongst many important points, is that these women were considered extremely valuable members of society. So not only did this woman set off for the sake of Allah and his messenger on foot without any provision into the great deserts of Saudi Arabia of the Hijaz as it was known, it's still known that area, uh, but that she was prized for her faith and she was prized for her piety and her character and her devotion. And they just weren't left unmarried. Like any man who had any sense of uh, pride, about himself would marry a woman like her because she would add to his um not his social status but he would add she would add to his spiritual status so when a man marries a pious woman it increases him in rank and with Allah and they knew that because she would could only be a good influence on him so we we see when we go into our study of the female companions and those after them how no woman was ever left unmarried. So if the husband died or they were divorced, then after the waiting period, someone would always come and marry them again. Um, and this uh, shows the value of these women. But today, of course, it doesn't work like that. And people are not prized. Women are not valued for their character and their piety and their devotion. But unfortunately, not really valued for anything much at all. Okay, the last one that we'll look at today is another amazing woman, mashallah, and her name is Jamila bin Sa'ad ibn Rabia al-Ansariya. And she was an amazing woman who had amazing children, and one of them became one of the great uh, scholars of Medina. 
And she was the daughter of also a great companion called Sa'ad ibn al-Rabi'ah. And what happened was that Sa'ad ibn al-Rabi'ah was martyred in the Battle of Uhud uh, along with one of his brothers when Jamila's mother was pregnant with her. So a few months later she gave birth and this woman Jamila was born. And because Jamila's mother at the time, uh, she didn't have a means to raise this daughter immediately, so she put her in the care of Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq, radiallahu anhu, of course, the great companion. And so she ended up staying in that house and being raised there in that environment with the most pure, the most beautiful Islam. And what had happened after that, after some time, and Jamila was still very young and she didn't know this until later when her mother told her when she got old enough to understand. But her mother went to the Prophet with her and her sister and she said, Ya Rasulullah, these two daughters are the daughters of Sa'd. And she said that their uncle, okay, who was one of uh, Sayyidina Sa'd's other brothers, took their money. Uh, when sorry took his money when he died and left them nothing and has left them nothing that they can use in their life nor get married with or prepare themselves for the rest of their life so basically whatever inheritance that they could have got being the daughters of someone was taken away from them and she came to uh, complain about that and say these girls have been left in poverty and so the Prophet said that Allah will decide on this matter and then the verses of inheritance were revealed. And so he said to Jamila's mother, go to their uncle and say to him, give the daughters two thirds of their father's wealth and give me, so the, the wife um, who, who's now a widow, give me one eighth and he can have the rest. So this is where the beginning of the rules of inheritance were established. And this story is related in the collection of At-Tirmidhi um, in the chapter on inheritance of the daughters. And it's a Hassan Sahih Hadith. So it's a, it's a sound Hadith. And um, what this shows us is that the Quran and the verses of inheritance in the Quran gave shares to women as mothers, as daughters, as sisters, and as wives. And so we know that the allocation of inheritance is, is a very particular science and um, one that is about distributing the wealth of the deceased in the most just way possible. So I put this picture here just to show this sort of sea of faces and, and to really highlight the fact that every single woman has her rights. Every single one of these women praying here has been accounted for, has been honored, has been valued and has been given her rights in Islam. And it doesn't matter the age, there's young ones, there's old ones, they all have the right to inherit. And those um, inheritance rights are set in stone forever. And there's no way that they can ever be uh, overridden or abrogated or taken away.
and that this is the right that Allah has given to all Muslim women until the end of time. And we need to remember that, that the, that the ultimate injustice is in what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has decreed and laid down in the Sharia, in the enlightened and ennobled Sharia, and that we need to understand that and serve and protect that and not allow ourselves to get uh, busy with the, the talk of other people who are ignorant and who don't understand what true justice is. So as it goes on, uh, Jamila married Zaid ibn Thabit, who was one of the great companions, who was of those who had memorized the Quran, written the Quran, and he himself was uh, the first of the great scholars of the science of inheritance. And she had many sons to him who all became scholars, and particularly her son Kharija, who became one of the great uh, authorities of law in Medina. She herself was Hafidh al-Quran, she'd memorized the Quran and she became an authority on it. And she also was an authority on the events of the Sira and the reasons for revelation. So she knew about how and why certain verses were revealed and when. Uh, and she also had hadith that she narrated from the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. It's not known exactly when she died, but it is known that she lived quite a while after her husband. Uh, so that's uh, kind of a summary of the life of this amazing woman, Jamila bin Saad. So may Allah be pleased with them all, inshallah, and enable us to really understand what has happened in their lives. So what can we learn from these situations as women on the straight path? So this is just a few points um, and I'm sure each of us has our own way of understanding and extracting benefit from these stories inshallah that are really meaningful to us personally but just in general these women knew that their value had been restored to them through the advent of Islam so they knew what it was like to live in the pre-Islamic time and they knew and as we saw some of the horrific practices that were committed against them because they were women and they knew that Islam restored their value and that the world had changed for everyone and particularly for them because when it came to the rights of men the rights of men of course changed but not as dramatically and as significantly as the rights for women changed under Islam so of course there were now things that men had to do that they didn't have to do before but the rights that the men got didn't change the the status that they had as much as it had changed for as much as it had changed the status of women so women knew that they were a part of a really really profound and significant and enlightened change and they really uh, held on to that and as we saw from Khawla bin Thalaba, she was extremely serious about wanting to fulfill what she had to do in order to apply and, and, and validate those rights that she had for herself. So not only did they know that they had rights, but they were also not shy to seek their well-being through their rights. So they didn't want to let these situations pass when they knew that uh, things had changed for them. So they didn't want to waste any opportunity. 
and they also knew that the Prophet was accessible to all and that he would never reject or disfavor them. And that's a part of him being Rahmatullil Alameen, being a mercy to all the worlds, that he was just as open and welcoming and warm towards them and, uh, and, and prepared to act for them the way that he would be for anybody because he was a prophet. He was the final prophet of Allah. He was the embodiment of the highest state of mercy and compassion towards every single being, whether that be animate or inanimate. Um, trees would greet him. The, the, the date palm that was used as his mimba, as his pulpit in the mosque, cried. Uh, when he no longer lent on it after a new pulpit had been built for him. And this was heard by the people in the mosque. And this is reported by over 40 different people. So this is true. And rocks would greet him as he walked past them. They'd say, Assalamu alaykum ya ayyuhan nabi. So the thing is that how could it be when people knew of who he was and his miracles that should they go to him that they would be turned away disappointed? Never, the Prophet ﷺ never disappointed anybody. And in fact, he gave so much more than what anyone would ever expect. And they knew that. So as we saw, whenever there was a problem, they went straight to him and they trusted wholeheartedly and without any doubt that the answer to their problem was in Islam, that the answer to all their problems was in him, in the Prophet ﷺ, that he would come and he would fix whatever it was that they were dealing with because he was the Prophet of Allah, that he was the embodiment of justice. And our problem is that we don't have that same view. Like we just don't see our faith and our religion in the way that they did. And we need to change that, okay? And we really need to try and understand and get into the same uh, mindset, the same headspace, the same cognitive frame, the same worldview, whatever word you want to put on it, that these women had. And then we will truly see how this deen works for us and how it is there to absolutely uphold and maintain all our rights and all justice and all compassion and all mercy, not just for us as women, but for the whole of humankind until the end of time. And so because of this completely uh, solid trust, they orientated themselves. So this word again, tawajjuh. So they orientated themselves and they gave themselves over completely to Allah and his prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in order to conduct themselves in the most authentic way. So in order for them to be truly Muslim, they needed to have that true direction, that true turning and that true submission and faith so that they would know how to act and be in this world in the way that they were created for, in order for them to be rectified here and to have the best outcome in the Akhirah, in the next life, inshallah. Part of our problem now and what prevents us from attaining this type of approach and living it uh, with Siddiq, with truthfulness, is that we are really afflicted with uh, the indoctrination of other ways of seeing the world, of understanding and of being in the world. And this all comes to us in this barrage of uh, modern secular education and society. And of course, you know, we are what, a couple of hundred years um, uh, post-colonization of the Muslim world. 
and not just politically and economically, but also intellectually. So colonization and imperialism don't just happen in what they call um, hard colonization, which is militarily and what goes with that, but it's also through the soft method, which is the changing of people's minds and hearts. And of course, that happens through education and through the imposition of foreign popular culture, like as is usually referred to like the McDonald's culture, which has spread all around the world. So we're a couple of hundred years down the track and the the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has still blessed us with Iman, with faith, whether we are what's called heritage Muslims, so born into Muslim families or not, um, people who've come to Islam later in life as converts, the fact that Allah has blessed us with the opportunity through having guidance, through having faith, uh, and to even be able to connect to this is the most incredible and most important gift and blessing that any human soul could ever be given, um, ever, ever, ever. And so we really, really need to take ourselves to account and think, you know, what am I thinking and why? What is it that has affected me in such a way that I don't approach the Quran and I don't approach my deen in the way that these women did? And we might say, oh, well, they were there at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, so of course it was easy for them. But it wasn't. And we saw that it wasn't through the story of Umm Kulthum, who was the who set off walking to Medina. She was so persecuted by her family that she was basically imprisoned. That's not easy, but it didn't stop her. And so she was prepared to risk all of her life, basically, by going out to the desert without any supplies um, in, order, because she, in order for her deen, because she just couldn't take um, the, the abuse anymore. So the thing is that we need to really check ourselves and to know, as I said at the beginning, that they experience the revelation of the Quran in real time, but that real time has not actually stopped because the Quran is an ongoing miracle from Allah and it is actually the biggest miracle that the Prophet Muhammad was blessed with and it is alive and it's alive in the hearts of people who've memorized it. It's alive in the fact that people still try and base their life on it and it is alive as the word of Allah until the end of time. And so we need to realize that it's real time for us is now because we are the community of the Prophet. We are his ummah now in this time. So it's our duty, responsibility and inshallah the greatest act of shukr, of gratitude and love to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we take this Quran the way that those women did and that we take our religion the way these women did and the only people who are going to benefit from that are ourselves and our children and those around us and inshallah the future generations that we can pass that on to. So we need to overcome our disconnection, our disenfranchisement and our overwhelming uh, intellectual laziness about can't really be bothered getting into the Quran. It's in Arabic. Oh, I don't know Arabic. Oh, well, you know, I'll just stick it on, listen to the radio. I won't bother studying it. No, we have to really push through that, inshallah, and take this Quran. Yeah, Yahya, khudil kitaba bikuwa. Oh, Yahya, take the book with strength. Take it properly and sincerely and, and do the right thing by it. And we have to leave this train wreck 
of progressiveness and feminist discourses that have uh, infiltrated us to the extent where we think that the answer to our issues is there, that these uh, ideologies which are baseless and faithless and absolutely leading to their own implosion and destruction, that somehow we're going to get some type of justice or some type of rectification through this stuff which is just built on kufr? Like, how can any Muslim seriously think that that's what's going to bring you justice and goodness in your life? So we really need to take these blinkers off and take the steps to connect holistically to the Quran, just as these women did, regardless of how small those steps are. So inshallah, um, these stories help us really formulate and, and as I said, mold our tawajjuh, our orientation, our orientation to Allah, uh, by helping us respond to the divine call and the divine message uh, in the best way possible, inshallah. Okay, so we'll leave it there, inshallah, and uh, next week we'll have a look at a few more of these stories. Please forgive me for any shortcomings and inshallah I hope to catch up with you next week. And remember that we are on Instagram and Facebook and Telegram and email uh, misswomen at gmail.com for anything at all that you might want to communicate or whatever. Inshallah, ahna wa sahlan to everybody. Jazakum al khair. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.